Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. All right. And I want to invite you to open or turn on or scroll or whatever it is you do in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. Stampede. All right. Don't fall. You'll just get run over. All right. They got it. Man, if only we were as excited to come to go to our Bible class, right? All right, Mark chapter 10. That's Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 is what we want to look at this morning. What we're going to see in this passage, and I'll just kind of give you the point of the sermon right up front. We're going to see at this passage that James and John still don't get it. In Mark 9 and 10, they have been caught arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus has a like very literal come to Jesus kind of moment with them, confronts them on that. And then in Mark chapter 10, when all the other 10 are away, they're like, hey, Jesus, how about we get to be the greatest in your kingdom? Make us sit at the right and the left hand. Like they still just don't understand what Jesus is trying to teach them even another chapter later. But what I want us to see is this, is that Jesus is leading the way. That's the big point that we're going to see, that Jesus leads the way because what he does in this passage is he promises these men that they will get it. He promises them that they will do the things that he has called them to do, even though they, quite frankly, aren't there yet. In Mark chapter 10, they're not there. And actually, at the end of Mark, they still won't be there. They will run away from Jesus and they will abandon him. But Jesus is promising that his spirit The Holy Spirit is going to do the kind of work in them that they will get there eventually. And that's the promise that he's going to make in this section of Scripture that we want to see. And that's what I want to see for us, is that Jesus is leading the way. And right now, in your life and in my life, you don't get it. And I don't get it. There's a lot of ways that Jesus is calling us to be a certain way, a certain kind of person, and we're just not there yet. But we want to take confidence because Jesus has promised that he will bring us there. That if you are a Christian, he says, I'm going to get you where I want you to be. And one day you'll be glorified with him before the Father. That's the main point of the sermon, that Jesus is leading us. And that we're just going to walk through section by section and see the way that he leads us. So let's go ahead and read the entirety of the passage together with that in mind. Verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said, what do, you want, uh, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them, and said to them, or called, excuse me, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that you are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would grant among you, or, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, help me as we walk through this text to focus my mind on your words, to declare your thoughts for this body of people. Father, I am unworthy and unable to be what they need in this moment. But you are worthy and you are able. And there's not one single gift that you withhold. God, we need a word from you today. We live off the word of God. So God, I ask that you would speak through me in this moment in an adequate vessel, but one that you've chosen to use for honorable use. And God, that you would help me put my trust in you and your word and not in anything else. And God, through that and by that means, you would speak to us and to this body today. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're looking at those first two verses there. What we see is that they are on a road, and I've been telling you that they're heading toward Jerusalem. This is actually the first time that Jesus says that. This is the first time that Jesus says, we are on our way up to Jerusalem. And it's kind of funny. He says up because it's actually really literal. They're around Jericho at this time, and Jerusalem is just at a higher elevation. So they're going to have to walk up to Jerusalem, and they're walking and making their way to the city. Now, Jesus has said not once, but twice before this, that he is going to die for the sins of people and then raise again. He said that at the end of Mark chapter 8. He said it again in chapter 9. And now he's going to say it for a third time. He's going to let them know that that's what, they're, that's what he is doing. And in this passage, what's really interesting is, it's, is Mark takes a moment to give us this detail that Jesus was walking ahead of them. So here's Jesus, and he's already told them, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem 
And listen, I'm going to go to be delivered to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the, to the Sanhedrin, and they know where that is. We're heading toward Jerusalem, and they don't follow him quite as quickly as what seems to be normal. But he's walking in front of them, and it says that they were astonished, and they were afraid. So he has these people who are supposed to be these faithful commandments to him, and he is leading the way quite literally to his own death. And they are reluctantly following. They are following, but they're not happy about it. They're not excited. And the text tells us they were astonished by him, and they were afraid. And that's what I want us to see in this passage, that we are so much like them. Jesus calls us to follow, and he leads the way, but we, while amazed and astonished by him, are often afraid. And as he does this in the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them. And he tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man, referring to himself. And this time he gives even more details than the times previous. He's going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, which in this particular situation would have been the Roman government. Because this Jewish council did not have the authority to put him to death, but the Roman government would. So this Jewish council is going to condemn him to death by their own laws, and then they're going to take him to the Romans. I think this is meaningful for us because what it's showing is, is a God's story-like way, using real and literal events, he's showing us who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And the answer is everyone. Every human being is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. It was not just the Jews who do it, and it's not just the Gentiles. And using this word Gentiles to describe the Roman government as a way to encapsulate and capture all people of every place, of every tribe and nation. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, that's a way to encapsulate all of the world. Every ethnicity and every group of people is responsible for the death of Jesus. They will deliver him over as an innocent man. and They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and they will kill him. In the rest of Mark, we're going to see in chapters 14 and 15 that all of those exact things will come true. He'll be mocked. He will be spit on and he will be beaten and flogged. And then he will die a criminal's death on a cross that he does not deserve for our sake. And that's what Jesus is telling them. No wonder they're reluctant to follow. No wonder they're a little bit afraid. But Jesus isn't. He looks and he sets his face is what Luke tells us. He sets his face toward Jerusalem, meaning he is determined, this is where I will go, and he begins to walk up from Jericho to Jerusalem to die for the sins of men. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we get even more insight into the thoughts of Jesus. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What enables us to set aside our sins? What enables us to run after Jesus, to follow him? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I am like the disciples. You are like the disciples. You are like these 
people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, you grow weary, you grow faint-hearted and scared. And the answer is look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He endured hostility. Hebrews tell us, Jesus tells us, he endured mocking, spitting on, flogging, and ultimately death. His face was set on Jerusalem because of the joy that was set before him because he knew what his death would accomplish. So if you're burnt out and beat up, you're just flat out tired, you can't believe that you've done the same thing over and over and over again. You're starting to question, am I even good enough? Do I deserve to be here? Quit looking in and start looking up. Look up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Scottish pastor, he was long, long dead, Robert Murray McShane said this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. And here's what you need to apply. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus or at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. What is this pastor trying to say to his people? He's trying to say, I know where you've been. You're afraid. You're unimpressive. You're massively imperfect. And Jesus looks on you and his eyes are settled on you in love. Stop looking to yourself. Look to Jesus. We must look to the one who is set before us, who has set his face on the redemption of all people through his death because he doesn't just stay dead. It says that he will endure those things, the mocking, the spitting, the flogging, and ultimately death and be killed. But after that, three days, he will rise. He has risen from the dead, and because he has done that, we can follow him, and we have the ability to obey, to do what he has asked us to do. But we cannot do that if we are looking to ourselves. We must do that if we're only looking to Jesus, Jesus, the one who leads the way for us. He is a perfect leader, leading imperfect disciples, and their imperfections continue to show themselves as James and John approach him in the next passage. Let's look at that. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said unto him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That's audacious. Hey, I'm going to ask you, before I ask you, will you agree to say yes? What a thing. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to him, You do not know what you are asking. It's like talking to a kid. Dad, 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 let me, like, just run the house for a day. You do not know what you're asking. You have no idea what comes with all this. You're so naive. Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand, and we want to sit at your left hand. Let us, let us do this. And Jesus is saying, you do not know what you are asking. And he asked this question, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which which I am baptized? 
In the Old Testament, the cup is a symbol of God's allotment to his people. Sometimes it's a blessing, that your cup overflows with blessing, but it's definitely something that is coming from God. But also in the Old Testament, what happens all throughout it, it's the wrath of God. And Jesus will take the full wrath of God. He's going to drink up the wrath of God and in that suffer unjustly. Then his disciples, while they aren't enduring the wrath of God, they will follow in his steps and suffer unjustly because they are followers of Jesus. And he is saying to them, are you really able, you think you're able to drink that cup? The same thing with baptism. I don't think he's talking about literal baptism in this particular passage. He's talking about being immersed in his death and in his likeness. Because that's what we do. The word baptizo in Greek literally just means immersion. So he's saying, can you be immersed in the things that I'm being immersed in? And baptism, we know, represents the death of Jesus. And then we come back up, the resurrection with Jesus. He is saying, can you die the death that I'm going to die? Can you take the persecutions and the sufferings that I am about to endure? And they say, really naively, we are able I guess they, they just don't get it. I, that's what you say when you want to be at the right or left hand of God. And he tells you, you just have to check the box, yes. But then Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. See, I think Jesus is being purposely really, really vague in the back half of that. Because what he's saying is, guys, You don't get it yet, but you will. You're not at a place where you're willing to drink this cup yet. You're not at a place where you're willing to be baptized in this baptism yet, but you will. And when you get there, it won't be for the sake of sitting at my right hand or my left hand. It won't be for your own sake. When you get there, you're going to be willing to do this for my sake, for my honor, and for my glory. Because that's what's been happening in Mark. In Mark 8.35, he has said to them that if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will save it. And that's what he's calling these men to do. He's calling them to literally lay down their life for his sake and the Gospels. And in that, they will save it. But it's not just about them And Jesus is showing them, you won't get to that kind of place. You won't get to the kind of place where you're going to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel on your own or just because you asked for it when the other 10 weren't paying attention. You'll get there because I'm going to bring you there. Philippians 1, 6 tells us, we read it in our scripture reading, and I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So sinner and sufferer, know, know this truth. Jesus is gonna get you there. Jesus, he leads imperfect people, but he leads them to perfection. One day we will do the things that he has called us and prepared for us to do. You're gonna walk in those good works. Maybe it's not yet today. Your motivations aren't right. The things that you're supposed to be doing, you're not doing. But Jesus is promising you will get there. You will drink this cup. You will take this baptism. And when you do, it won't be for your own selfish desires. It'll be to glorify and honor me. What's so interesting in that, even as a pastor and in my early days of being raised up, you know, you would hear things like you're being prepared for something. 
God is preparing you something for the future. And you're told that a lot when you're, when you're young, even if you're not a pastor, right? God is really preparing you for stuff. And in our American culture, we can think that's a lot of grandeur, something really great. That is true. God is preparing each of us for whatever is coming next. He is bringing even the sufferings of your life to build endurance into you. No matter what God is calling you to do, God is preparing you to do that thing. The problem is, is we think that thing is great in our eyes rather than great in the kingdom of God. As we look at somebody like James, we see that once the Gospels are over, he doesn't get mentioned very much. Now, he gets called James the Great by the church. But when we look through the book of Acts, it's Peter and John who are doing the cool, miraculous things. It's Peter and John who are getting to preach the sermons. It's Peter and John who are doing a lot of the stuff. James is just kind of there. And he really doesn't get mentioned in the book of Acts until Acts chapter 12. You know what James is known for in the Christian church? What God was preparing him to do that was going to make him James the Great? Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This is where James is mentioned in the book of Acts. And at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. That's his triumph. He's the guy who got killed with a sword. That's what he's known for. Now the early church looked at that, and the early church said, that's great. He got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. He died at the hands of evil men. That's greatness. God is preparing for you to do things in his kingdom and be great, but it's according to his economy of greatness, not ours. We must consider, what is it that God is calling me to do? Is it perhaps that we might resonate with another great man of the Bible, somebody who Jesus said, there's no one greater among men are born of woman John the Baptist, when he said, I must decrease that he must increase. The willingness to lay down our life and to be unimpressive. The willingness to maybe say, hey, maybe I am just kind of a mediocre person, but I'm going to be a faithful mediocre person. It's a lot different than a lot of what our culture tells us of how great and awesome we are and how we can go out and change the world. But just maybe if we would stop focusing on trying to change the world, we could just change the neighbor across the street. Just maybe we could be a blessing to our own families in our own communities that God has us in. And just maybe instead of trying to change the entire world, we would just be faithful to the mission that God has set before us. See, what I want you to know and believe over this and apply is you need to know that Jesus will change you over time. If you're like me, you read through Mark 9 and 10, and I can just be so judgmental of these guys. Like, he literally sat you down and already told you this. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He said it like three times. And in the moment, everybody else gets, I don't know, bored on the road. Two of you take him to the side and are like, hey, so you want to make us great now? They just, they don't get it. But Jesus is so filled with love. And he looks at this and says, hey, you will get there. You will drink this cup. You'll be baptized in this baptism. And it won't even be for yourself. I'm going to do a work in you that is so radical, you're going to look totally and completely different. And they do that because they have an excellent example, because that's the last point that we want to bring out today. This, this is Jesus leads by example. You look at the rest of the passage there, picking up verse 41. He said, And then the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, yeah, 
They're like going behind their back, like, hey, make us really, really great. I wonder what Peter's thinking. He's like, hey, guys, it used to be the three of us. You ditched him too. But they just do it. And, and the 10 get really, really angry about that. They're upset with them and, and they don't get it. But Jesus, instead of admonishing them for getting angry about it or doing anything, Jesus just flips it on them. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus begins to contrast the Gentiles, people that these Jewish men were seen as extreme sinners, with those who belong to his kingdom. We've seen that contrast in the last two stories that we, we went through, right? The children inherit the kingdom of God, but a ruler doesn't. That's the contrast. Like Jesus' economy doesn't look like the world's economy. He's saying these Gentiles lord their authority over people. They exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. This is something that he's already said in Mark 9. That, that to lead in his kingdom, you must lay down your life for other people. You must be a servant and be a slave to all. To lead in the kingdom of God doesn't look like leadership in the world. We're currently watching leadership in the world exercise what it's been doing since the beginning of time. Men of power utilizing power to persecute people who don't have power. As overnight, a bigger country just said, this is ours now. And that happens all over the world. The reality is, is we're talking about this because it impacts us. But all over the world, the Gentiles, Jesus calls them here, but the non-believer, those who are not in the kingdom of God, are exercising authority. You see that in your workplace. You see that in your families. Sometimes I'm the guilty man who lords my authority over my wife and children instead of being like Jesus and being a servant to all and a slave to all because I am like these disciples in so many ways. A promised finished product, but still in the making that's what we see. I want to take us a step back and we'll go back to Mark 8.35. It should be here on the, the screen. If we can just look to that. Great. Fantastic. And then I want to look at what Paul teaches in Galatians 2.20. Because I want you to see here what Jesus is teaching and then what the followers of Jesus do. And how they come out of that. And I have those sections highlighted there in red because I want you to see the the, the the connection um, there. Um, but I think we're actually missing, we'll save it on Mark 8, 35. But for whoever would save his life uh, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, then it would say, we'll save it. <laughs> if you look down in your Bible for that part. And then Paul in Galatians 2, 20, talking to a group of people who have forgotten the gospel, okay, they've abandoned the gospel, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Right? So whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, and then we'd say, we'll save it, would be in the black there. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So what we want to see here is the, is the, 
that the losing of life and being crucified with Christ is, is, is there, there's teaching the same thing. Paul doesn't like go rogue and start teaching whatever he wants to teach. He's teaching what Jesus has always been teaching. But then Paul says, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. Now that's what he's saying is, is, is those who will save it. He's now alive because he has died to himself. But why does Paul do, do that? He does that because he loved me and gave himself up for me. There we go. Well, we're still the will save it. still not the right color, but that's all right. It's okay. We tried to get this to work out and it didn't work. But the point that we're trying to bring out of all that is just simply this. What Jesus is teaching impacts and saves their life. It changes these men. See, Jesus is calling them to come and follow me. And it looks a very particular way. He's saying, come and follow me and be willing to lay down your life for my sake. And in that, that's what will save you, is the laying down of your life. It's a very literal thing for the guys that he's talking to in these passages But what we want to say is Paul says the same thing, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here's what we want to close with this morning. Is we want to see what it looks like to follow the call of Jesus. And I made just a little mnemonic here for us if we look at that c-a-l-l what does it mean to follow the call of jesus what is happening in this passage mark ten forty five. it tells us for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many jesus is going to be the example of what it looks like to live your life as a ransom for many to follow this call of jesus and to follow him looks like C, to be captivated by Jesus. See, what I want to see is what it looks like to follow Jesus is to say, he's my number one. I'm captivated and enamored with him. There's a little children's song that's been running through my head as I've been doing this, and it's just, my beloved, uh, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. His banner over me is love. And I've been thinking about that. When I fail, when I mess up, when everything is going wrong, when I feel totally inadequate, I keep thinking his banner over me is love. It's not failure. It's not I wish you'd get it better. It's not I wish you would just figure this out. Jesus looks at me and sees everything about me and he says his banner over me is love. Paul, when he talks about why am I crucified with Christ, why is it no longer I who live but Christ lives in me, he says why? Because he loves me he gave himself up for me. What we see first is that he's captivated by the love of Jesus. He's enamored by Jesus. And when we're captivated by Jesus, that empowers us and enables us to abandon our idols. We saw that with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler wants to come to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? And Jesus is saying, are you captivated with me? Do you really love me? Do you, what do you want to do? Why, why do you call me good? There's one thing that you lack as Jesus looks into him and he loves him. He says, there's one thing that you lack. Sell all that you have and come and follow me. You have to abandon your idolatry if you want to follow Jesus. We then have to learn to love what Jesus loves. I know I could have just made it love what Jesus loves. It also starts with L, but I wanted to put the word learn in there because I think that's really what it actually looks like in this life, doesn't it? 
You don't just naturally start loving all the things that Jesus loves. You have to learn to love the things that Jesus loves. It takes some effort and some difficulty. It takes time. And finally, because when we do that, when we're captivated by Jesus, when we've abandoned our idols, and when we learn to love what Jesus loves, we live resolved to be like Jesus. We as human beings have to know and believe things. They have to capture our minds and our imaginations, but they also have to capture our affections and our loves. And when that happens, that then results in us living a very particular way. We're going to make some actual commitments. We're going to make some actual resolutions, but they're not going to be like news resolutions that we quit by the end of February. But we're talking about real commitments, real resolutions to live a different way, to be committed to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to be teaching these guys in the end of Mark 8 and 9 and 10. You have got to resolve to not put yourself first. But the reality is this. You will not be committed unless first you are captivated. You will not be committed unless first you are captivated. That's what I want us to see from this passage. Is when Jesus is telling them, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to be the one who dies on the cross for your sin. And when they're afraid to follow, Jesus leads the way to Jerusalem. When they, when they walk, keep walking through and they still don't get it and they're wanting to put themselves first, everybody else last, Jesus is saying, you'll get there. You're going to get there eventually. You're going to be humble, but it's because I'm going to make you humble because I'm the one who's doing the work and I lead imperfect people and I lead them towards perfection. And he, and he explains to them, and this is what you're going to look like. You're not going to be the kind of leader who lords it over people, but rather you're going to be the kind of leader who, makes, who is a servant of all and a slave to all. But why are you going to do that? Why would you ever lead that way? Because you're captivated by Jesus and because he's the example set before you. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus is teaching them. If you love me, you're going to want to be like me. Be captivated by me. Abandon the things, your own selfishness, your own desire for position, power, status that they have. Learn to love the things that I love. And then live resolved to be more like me. That's his calling in Mark 9 and 10. What's going to happen, we have one more passage in Mark 10 next week. And we will spend two months in two chapters. Highlighting a pretty long period of Jesus' life. But then we're going to pick up in chapter 11. And we are going to spend from the end of, beginning of March until the end of July looking at one week of the life of Jesus. Mark 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 cover one week in the life of Jesus. Six chapters of a book that's only 16 chapters long only cover one week. That's an important week. Because in that week, he will come to Jerusalem and they will declare that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And they will worship him. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. And in that week, He'll spend time with his disciples and he'll give them something that Christians will practice forever. He shows them what it looks like to take this cup and this piece of bread. And in that week, he will go and he will die a criminal's death that he does not deserve. 
He'll be mocked, spit on, and flogged. And he'll be killed. He'll stay and be put in a tomb for three days, but on the third day, he will rise again. And that's the gospel. That's what Mark wants us to see, is he's building us to that, and he's saying, look at the example he's giving us. We can live humble. Why? Because look what he did. He gave his life as a ransom for many. As we come and we take this table today, here's what I want us to do. We're going to take roughly, I invite Kendall up to just uh, play some guitar behind us, roughly two minutes here. And if we can get the guys on the slides in the back, if you can bring back up that call slide for me and just place it there on the screen. There it is. I want you to reflect on these things for roughly about two minutes. And Ben, if you can kind of keep a two-minute timer there, you go ahead and do that. And then when that two minutes is up, we'll go ahead and go back to that mark slide, and that will be your cue that you can come up and partake of this, okay? So that slide will change in about two minutes, and we'll do that. And what I want you to do is I just want you to reflect through and pray through these things for the next two minutes or so. Am I captivated by Jesus? Are there any things, Jesus, that you're calling me to abandon? Help me learn to love the things that you love and then that you would make a resolution, that you would make some commitments in your heart to live to be more like Jesus. When that two minutes is up, you can just come at your own pace and that's okay. Maybe if you need a little more than two minutes, that's fine. And I'm gonna ask that you just walk up the center aisle here, take the elements and then head back to your seat around this away. You'll go ahead and do that. And as we do that, We'll reflect on those things and then I will read the passage from 1 Corinthians and we will take the elements all together. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we ask that you don't take of these elements. Why would we ask you not to participate? Because when you take of these elements, you're telling everyone in the room, I believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sin and in my place and I believe that he has risen from the dead and I believe that he's coming back again. And if you don't believe that, we don't want you to lie. You don't need to feel the pressure to do that. We would ask that people would come and they would take this in a worthy manner. And the only way to take this in a worthy manner is to take this covered in the blood of Jesus. And that is by faith and repentance in Jesus and Jesus alone. So let's go ahead, take roughly two minutes here to pray.